This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, with that, let us turn to our Bibles. Open your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. We are nearing the end. It's just today and next Sunday in the Equipped series. And this week we are in one of the letters, the only one we'll do in the series in the New Testament called 1 John. Next week will be in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, which is the very end of the Bible. So 1 John, this is different than the Gospel of John, though written by the same man. The Gospel is near the beginning of the New Testament. This is very near to the end of the New Testament. So 1 John is the first of three letters that we have recorded from the Apostle John in our Bible. And so while you're locating that, it's a small book, so if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, just take a a few minutes to get there. There's a table of contents, you can use that. Let me lay out just what I hoped for this series, what I hoped that these messages in, in Equipped would do in all of our lives. We planned hard, harder than than and in more detail than, than I've ever planned for a sermon series, and, and I had three hopes in doing that. We really wanted these sermons to be great for you. I hope that by looking at the Bible story quickly, and by concentrating on just the biggest things that God does, that we would have a renewed perspective of the greatness of God and his work in redeeming people in the world by looking at the the Bible as just one big story, how he redeems the lost through his love. And to do that, I knew that we were going to have to skip some really, really good parts of the Bible. We are bombarded by information these days, especially uh, we've had the pandemic, we've had an election year. There's so many things constantly pressuring us for our time and our attention that I knew in order to cut through that, we would lose focus if we didn't move quickly. So we just picked 13 things, 13 chapters, 13 movements of God, knowing that we were going to miss some really good stuff. But that was goal number one, the big picture of what God is doing. Goal number two was to help you build personal Bible reading skills. Now, I I love God's call in my life to preach and teach the word. There are few things and few places I like to be than right here doing this with you. Uh, But I can't, no pastor can really, no other person can for you be as good of a teacher as the Holy Spirit when you sit down to read the Word of God for yourself. And so I wanted to equip you, pun intended, to be a better Bible reader so the Holy Spirit might more fully work in your lives. And I know that it can be intimidating. If you don't have a lot of background in the Bible, it's a, a book that is sometimes chronologically, historically, sociologically, anthropologically distant from us. And so we wanted to teach you Bible reading skills that would hopefully help you to have more confidence as you read the Bible alone. And then even better than reading it alone, that you might feel more confident in grabbing somebody who knows the Bible a little bit less well than you do and saying, hey, come on, let's read the Bible together. And we put the study guide together. I wanted to have something for you to keep and for you to be able to refer back to. 
And so goal number two, then, is helping you to become a more confident Bible reader. And there's a third goal, and it is far and away the most important goal. Really, it's the, it's the reason that I preach at all. I hope that in this series, but more fully than that, as you read your Bible, that you will see in it the heart of God, his love, and his kindness to you, and that as you read his word, you would experience a deepening and more profound sense of satisfaction in your life with Jesus than in any other thing in all the world. So in other words, just really simply, my highest aim, all my highest aims, are that you would have a deeper relationship with Jesus because of what we're doing. And that's what today is very specifically about. 1 John 2 is an important chapter in the Bible. At the beginning, at the middle, and at the end, there's an incredible invitation, call from John, but it refers back to an invitation from Jesus to abide (coughs) in him. I want us all to know and to, (coughs) excuse me, I want us all to know and to abide in Jesus. And it's a a different word than we use a lot. We don't use the word to abide. So let me just tell you, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, invited people into relationship with him in three kind of ways, three spheres, if you will, for people to personally relate to him. The first is Jesus tells people that they can come to him. We can come to Jesus. So think of Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He means anybody who's weighed down, anyone who's stressed out, anybody who feels like they're at the end of their rope, come to him. Give those things over to him because he has a burden that's easy. He can lighten your load. Jesus is not another set of rules. He's not another set of commandments where most of us are going to fail, fall short, recognize what we aren't, and end up feeling more miserable than when we started. No, he's gentle and he's kind. He understands and he sympathizes with us, with you. And so to the weary, Jesus says, come. Jesus invites the weary to come. The next thing Jesus says, another way that Jesus calls people to himself, is to follow him. So John 8, 12, for instance, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When Jesus calls people to follow him, he means that they have a distinct choice to make. They can follow the pattern of the world, which leads to more grief, more loss, more regret, because the world is wholly incapable of delivering on its most uh, glamorous promises. The world cannot deliver on its most glamorous promises. And so Jesus says, don't follow the way of the world, follow me. So when I say the glamorous promises of the world, I mean things like chasing success, 
Things like chasing money, trying to appear good-looking, to win the praise of other people, maybe even to live a life that other people would envy. But the world can never fully deliver on those promises. People die rich, but miserable and sad and alone all the time. And no matter how great you think you might have it going, there's always somebody that has it going just a little bit better, it seems. Good looks fade, never seems to be quite enough money. So all the things that the world promises, it can't really deliver. But Jesus says, follow me. And he says that I will make your paths straight. I will give you an abundance of joy. And in me is life everlasting. So follow Jesus for real, true life. He will free you from the pattern of sin and following the natural patterns of this world. Follow him. And then in 1 John... He picks up on a theme that he wrote about in his gospel, particularly chapter 15. There's a third way that Jesus calls people into relationship with him. He says, abide in me. Abide is a word that means to stay with or to remain or to rest. Not just in the sense of hang around, but to find peace. We're all looking for peace. Abiding is a significantly internal work of being with Jesus. It's consistent with what we see in 1 John. Because John writes that to abide in Jesus is first to obey him, and then second to remain with him. So we begin in Jesus by obeying him. The first call, come to him, then begin following him in obedience, and now abide in him in ongoing fellowship and relationship. But we would ask, well, how can you remain with somebody who's not physically here? We can obey somebody. We have some commandments. We can do that. But how do we remain with somebody who doesn't seem physically present with us? Jesus has ascended to the Father. He now sits in heaven. And so the answer to how do we remain with Jesus when he's not physically here is it does have a significantly internal component. Abiding with Jesus is what happens in our hearts. And what happens in our hearts, like blood is pumped all over our body to restore their oxygen, in a sense to keep them alive. When Jesus, when we abide with Christ in heart, it affects every other area of our being. So the invitation here is to abide. Now let's read. We're going to do a little bit at the beginning, and then I'm going to hit the turbo jets, and we're going to go very quickly at the end. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, which is a way John often addresses his readers. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We talked about propitiation a few weeks ago. It's the best news you will ever hear. It may be the best word you could ever know. Propitiation means that you are guilty of sin, but Jesus was not. And as a gift, he offers you a trade. Your life for his. You get, in Jesus, undeserved forgiveness. He takes undeserved punishment. And by his willingness to trade, you receive the approval and joy and favor of God. Propitiation. And John says, I'm writing all these things so that you will know, know the commandments of God. We see those coming. He doesn't want you to sin. doesn't want me to sin. But he's not going to lambast the sinner. He's going to say, but if you do sin, Christian, if you do sin, he said earlier in 1 John 1, 8, if anybody says they are without sin, they lie and they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. Folks, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. Even in Christ, you will sin. And John has good news. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus, who is righteous, will give you through propitiation his righteousness so that when you sin, you will be forgiven. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 asked the question, well, does that mean that we just go on sinning because God will keep on forgiving? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. John wants us to not sin. But when we've put in our best effort, when we've lived in the grace of God, when we have desired to obey him, even when we fall short because of the flesh, we have an advocate in the Father, but with the Father, Jesus Christ, and it will be forgiven. And not just for us, but for anybody who believes in Christ. Now, before we keep going, let's talk about why I chose this chapter for this week. When you're reading the Bible, one of the key questions you should be asking is, why was this written? Technically, we would call this determining authorial intent. Knowing why something was written has all sorts of implications for how you'll read it. If you want to know what is the true meaning and purpose of life, if you want to ask the big questions, you will consult your Bible, hopefully. You should read theologians and great philosophers who ask big questions. If you want to know how to repair a washing machine, read the manual. Different things are written for different reasons. So when we are reading anything, the Bible in particular, we should ask, why is this written? And the goal is so that by asking why this was written, maybe some other questions like who wrote it, what was the circumstances that it was written in, uh, what was happening in the world, all that kind of stuff, we will have a better understanding of what it is that we're reading. There's something in your study guide. Uh, I used arrows in there. You can think of it like a funnel. You start out, you ask, who wrote this? The author. And a couple of, who, who, who was he, in, in this case, John, who, you know, what, uh, what, what was the world? He's like, where did he write from all this kind of stuff? And then you kind of funnel down a little bit, and you go, well, who was it written to? 
What was their part of the world like? What, were, what challenges were they facing? And hopefully, by asking questions like that, you will arrive at more centrally the aim. Why was this written? So you've got the author, the audience, and the aim. So let me just show you this with First John. I cheated again a little bit because this is going to come up all over the place in this chapter. But we can do this just, just right here. We can know that this is written by John. He's an apostle. It means he was a close friend of Jesus, one of the very few men that Jesus called to be partakers of life with him and then caretakers of the gospel to the nations. So Jesus had a, a, a very close group of friends. John was among the closest of his friends. And then when he leaves the world to go to heaven, he commissions John and a few other people to take the good news of Jesus all over the world. We know that John is writing sometime near the end of the first century. John did suffer significant persecution for his faith, but we believe based on church tradition and history, he was the only one of Jesus' original disciples who did not die fairly early in his life. He probably died of old age. He probably died sometime in the 90s AD. This letter was likely written a little bit before that, sometime in the 70s or 80s. It's a fairly wide range for a New Testament letter of when scholars think that this letter was written. But it doesn't really matter. Its themes are fairly universal. We still get much out of it. it doesn't, we don't need to narrow it down much beyond that. John also wrote Revelation. It's the last book in your Bible. Probably 91, 92 AD, somewhere in there. We think this was written quite a while before that. At least several years. What John is doing is writing to Christians to address some of the really big things happening in the early church. One thing he's writing about is that people were breaking away from the church. They were leaving the church. Some angry, some confused, some hostile, and some were leading people astray with false beliefs. Another thing he's writing about is that people were concerned about threats to the church. What, what was going to come against the church. And finally, a third one is that people were questioning what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus. You can get all that just from reading the letter. Now, I've given this tip several times in the series, but I will give it again. When you're determining authorial intent, an introduction to a book of the Bible can be really helpful. Um, not scripture itself, but still really good. Oftentimes in a study Bible, you will have, at the beginning of every single book of the Bible, you will have three, four pages that helps you to know who wrote it, when they wrote it, some key themes, an outline of the book, uh, relevant information, all that kind of stuff. So get yourself a good study Bible. ESV, NIV is a good one. NASB, uh, the CSB, which is a newer Bible translation. They have one coming out. It might be already out, but it's, if not, it's coming out soon. It's supposed to be very good. There's all kinds of good uh, things out there, good tools out there to help you determine authorial intent. But this, this one's easy, and this is cheating. It just is. All over this chapter, John tells us plainly why he's written. Verse 1 says why he's writing. I'm writing so that you wouldn't sin. But if you do sin, I want you to know the good news of Jesus. If you look down at verse 7, he's writing to assure them that this kind of relationship with Jesus isn't new. It's the way that God always wanted it to be. And then starting in verse 12, six times, 
John tells us why he's writing. And we'll get there, but now we can move much more quickly. I want to read all the chapter because it's so good. I want you to hear the context. So let's go back down to verse 3. We'll make a, a, a little bit of headway there, and then we'll finish strong. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever, abide, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So how do we know that we are in Jesus? Which is to say, how do we know God? We abide or walk in the way that Jesus walked. And folks, the way that Jesus walked is the way of grace and mercy and truth. Jesus had a remarkable way of relating to people. He always told the truth. And Jesus was really direct with the truth. But you'll notice every single time, every single time that Jesus interacts with somebody, if they received the truth that he brought, hard as it may be, difficult as it may be, even if they were in a life of deeply embedded sin, if they receive the truth that he preaches, his heart is soft and tender toward them. And he deals gently with them. The same thing is still today. When you are confronted with truth, if you have walked in here deeply embedded in sin, but you will hear the truth that you are in sin, but God offers forgiveness for Jesus Christ and you will confess your sin and repent it, he will deal kindly with you. But when Jesus interacted with people, if they were proud and they resisted the truth, he was not afraid to make their condemnation known. That's the thing about Jesus. He brings the truth, and he brings it hard. When people receive it, he's gentle. But when they don't, he's not afraid to make their, their place of condemnation known. And that, too, is love. Because when somebody is not receiving the truth, they need to know the dire consequence they are headed toward. So the first question, verse 6, who is it? How do we abide in Jesus? We walk the way he walked. I guarantee you, it will help you to know and walk the way of Jesus to be a person of grace and mercy, not to be a person who's bullying people with the truth all the time. There is a place for truth, absolutely. But when people receive it, be gentle and gracious. I've never known anybody who said, I was hard on people, and I've known God better because of it. Jesus was soft and tender. Verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you heard from the beginning. 
He wants to connect these things. This isn't a new way. God, uh, there's not a God who's harsh and then Jesus comes and he's soft. God has always been one way. He's always been merciful and graceful and you can see that consistently throughout the Bible because people almost as a rule violate the commands of God and walk in the pride and arrogance of their own wisdom. Yet God regularly, consistently, over and over again, gives them grace and mercy. He's always doing that. That is the way of God. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Listen, I don't think I really need to break this down. People who abide in Jesus love other people. If you are hateful, hard, prideful, racist, angry, you are not walking in the way of Jesus. Jesus loved people, so we love people. To abide in him is to love other people. The way Paul says it here is people who have been led to light by Jesus, love, and show grace. It's not always easy to do, but it's that simple to articulate. Loving people's hard sometimes because they don't always act like they deserve it, and neither do you. But we do it because Jesus did it. He's love, loving and patient with us, and that's not a new thing that God's doing. God's always been doing that. So now we get into this next section, starting in verse 12, where we read all these things. I'm writing this, I'm writing this, I'm writing this. Let me just give you a little key for understanding this. So Paul says he's writing to little children. He says he's writing to fathers and he's writing to young men. What does he mean by that? First, when he says little children, we could go kind of round and round. I'm just going to give you my conclusions on this. When he says little children, based on how he writes a lot of other places, I think he means everybody. Little children equals everybody. Fathers, and don't get caught up in the genderly single language. He means women too, don't worry. Fathers means older, more mature believers. Now, are there things that would be good if dads would know? Elders in the church would know? Absolutely. But there's nothing God calls an elder to in the church. There's nothing that God calls a dad to that everybody else isn't called to in some other sphere of their life except for parenting children as an actual father. All the spiritual requirements and all the commandments and all the qualifications for maturity are the same for all believers. So fathers equals older, more mature believers. Young men, he says, think he was a younger generation. There are things that we need to know when we're older and more seasoned in our faith. We'll get to that. And there are things that we are confronted by when we are younger in the faith. And there are always in a healthy church going to be people all over the spectrum. In fact, it's not good 
If you hear somebody go, you know, in our church, it's just a bunch of really mature believers. Really? Then why aren't there any other people that they've brought in that they're evangelizing, that they're discipling? And we just have a bunch of young Christians here. Well, it's time to get to work then, isn't it? There should always be, and there is by God's grace in our church, younger believers, middle-aged believers, and older believers. And I don't just mean that chronologically. I mean in our walk with Christ. So let's read what John writes to everybody, to the older, and then to the younger. He does it, he goes through two times each. I'm writing to you, little children, everybody, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So really quick as we get into this, we all need encouragement. I don't know anybody who's ever heard too many times that they are loved by God. I don't know anybody who doesn't need to regularly hear that they are forgiven in Jesus' name of their sin. So I'm writing to you, everybody, because your sins are forgiven. If you've come in here weighed down this morning, if you've tuned in online weighed down, if you think, I did it again, I did it again. It hasn't been a good week. I thought it was getting better. We can talk about accountability. We can talk about a lot of things. But you need to hear the word of grace and mercy that your sins are forgiven if you are in Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. The longer we are Christians, we have this odd tendency to forget the simplest things of the faith. If you are a Christian, you know God personally. The God who created the universe, the God who made everything that you can see, the God who created each person, you know him personally. I've been walking with Christ for over 20 years, and sometimes I am ashamed to admit to you that I take for granted the fact that I know God and that I can pray to him and that I know he hears me. It becomes a little too routine, don't you think? Christian, no matter how long I should remind you, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, just, just revel in that today that you know God. It's better than knowing the president. It's better than knowing some rock star, or some movie star. You know God. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. How do we overcome the evil one? We do that through Christ, not through our own strength. But sometimes younger people in the faith, ideally there should be a progression from immature in the faith to mature. And along the way, hopefully, it's the more immature people struggling over and over again with sins than the more mature people. If we have maturity in the faith and we're still struggling with those, those early sins... If we're still struggling the way we did 20, 30 years ago, there's a problem. But we need the encouragement of remembering. It's, it's like saying, young people, you can do this. You're young. You're young in your faith. You're new. You're battling these things of the flesh. There's a former way of life that you've recently come out of. But you can do this because Christ lives in you. You can do this when you feel like you beat up, when you feel like, I did it again, when you feel like, am I ever going to change? John says, you are in Christ, Christ is in you, and so you can change. You can overcome the evil one. He has overcome the evil one, and so you can 
two. Does it again. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. I love that last encouragement. Young people, because you are strong, not in your own strength, but in Christ's. Sometimes young people in the faith can feel so weak. Feel like, I don't know my Bible. All these people seem to be better Christians than I am. They all seem to have it together when I don't. Paul says, hey, if you're young in the faith, sorry, John, John says, if you're young in the faith, you're actually strong in Christ. The word of God is in you. And again, you can do this. You can walk with Christ. Verse 15, now we hit the turbo boosters. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We just, in our family devotions, read this this week. Um, just, that's what we were going through. And um, my oldest daughter asked, well, does that mean we don't love people? What about our family? What about the things that are precious to the world? Of course, it doesn't mean we don't love things in the world. It's just that we don't love them more than we love God. Our affection for them is not greater than God. When we do that, things are out of whack. The balance has been shifted, and things won't line up well. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, that's not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, remember, I told you there was another reason he was writing. People were afraid of challenges to the church. Here we read about challenges to the church, verse 18. Children, it's the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all, that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to you, to us, eternal life. I write these things to you. Let me just finish this out. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that, you should te- that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of According to the Bible, there will be threats that come against Christians and against 
Christ's church. One will be a specific and particular antichrist, somebody who does rise up to challenge the authority of God. They will not be successful. But there are also many things that are antichrist. Things that do not give glory to God are antichrist. Things that try to draw Christians away from their faith are antichrist. Could get into lots of different things regarding this, but I just want to say this one thing. If you are in Christ, be sure it won't happen. If you are worried, will I be drawn away if your faith in Christ is real? No, it will not. No, you will not. You are in him. You will be held secure in him. The truth is in you if you know him. He tries to, he's correcting some bad first century, first century theology, making a claim about the Trinity. If you have the Father, or if you have the Son, you have the Father. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you are secure in God. And then he gives this inv invitation. And now, little children, verse 28, abide in him. So that when he appears, when he comes again, and he will soon, that's what we look at in Advent. We're not just celebrating when Jesus was a baby. We're celebrating and longing and hoping, declaring our, uh, our belief in his imminent return. When he comes again, you will have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. So the invitation is to rest in him, to remain in him, to stay in him. So let's just close with this. Jesus says, come to me, to the weary. He says, follow me, to know the difference between promises of the world and true promises for everlasting life. And he says, abide in him so that you will know peace now and have assurance for the rest of your life. So if you are restless, if you are unsure, you can find rest in him. If you are anxious, you can bring your cares to him. If you wonder, where is this all going? What will happen to me? Come to him when you are unsure and find him unshakable. Are you afraid? Remain in him, abide in him. Even in the time when there is opposition to the gospel, when things come against the people of God, the charge is the same. The charge isn't draw your sword and run out to do battle. The charge is rest. Find peace and hope in God. Abide in him. This has been a really, really tough year. Perhaps the understatement of the decade. I'm not sure if we're in a new decade or just finishing it up in 2020, but it doesn't matter. In either decade, this is going to be the tough year, Lord willing. 
There was a survey that was released a couple days ago. I think it was Pew Research Group. Did you see this online? Unsurprisingly, every single demographic that you can possibly imagine is having a more difficult year than they did at, than they were at this point in 2019. So you can look at gender, you can look at age, you can look at ethnicity, you can look at geography, you can look at income level, you can look at any group that you want. Their mental, physical, and emotional well-being have decreased significantly from this point last year unsurprising in any way except for one group except for one group people who attend church regularly I would say isn't that a surprise but I think that's unsurprising in the same way that it's unsurprising to know that everybody else is having a tough year why would that be sure church is good at giving us hope and it's a good place for connection and everything else but I hope, I hope the real reason is that as people come to gather among the Lord's people and to receive the preaching of his word, their confidence in his sovereignty, their understanding and their knowledge of his grace, and their hope in him is more and more sure. In other words, I hope that Christians are different because we're abiding in Jesus Christ. We're remaining with him. The world around us, though it give way, though everything else should fail, Christians can sing it as well with my soul. That's what it means to abide in him. Lots of things are going to challenge us. Lots of things are going to come against us. But for the one who is in Christ... Our hope is sure in him. So he invites us to come and abide. Come, follow, and abide. Let's pray. God, may we know that more and more. I know that there are many, myself at the front of the line, who brings many cares in. Cares of the world, cares of our minds, wondering about the unsuredness of the time, wondering about what the future holds. It's been a year of challenge for our nation and for the whole world. You've seen much unrest. We've had a, a difficult political season with the pandemic, of course, and health concerns. But for the one who is in you, we can still, even in the midst of that, know peace. And so I pray for those that hear my voice here and that goes out over the internet. May they know the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. So may we be a people that abide in him. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.